Very good to be with you all this afternoon as we uh, move into Lent and Mark Ash Wednesday together. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. Those are the words of imposition long used by Christians on Ash Wednesday, words which are going to be spoken here over you in just a few minutes as ash and dirt are smeared on your forehead and mine in a sign of the cross like the one on the front of the bulletin. And that smearing will mark our entry into the penitential season of Lent. And that smearing tells us the truth about ourselves, a truth that we'd sometimes rather not admit. In fact, a truth we can conceal a lot of energy to conceal. The truth that we came from dust, and to dust we shall return, but by the grace of God. The God who brought us into existence, the God who gives us new life in Christ, and the God who promises to preserve our lives for all eternity. One way to approach Lent is to remember some of Jesus' words. We heard them a moment ago, those words which, which say, whoever would gain her life must lose it. Whoever loses his life on my account will gain it. As you can tell, as is self-evident, that statement signals a certain humbling, a certain relativizing of ourselves, a certain summons to emptying, to lowering. From dust we came, to dust we shall return. And how very different that attitude is from the modus operandi which we so often encounter in our society these days and perhaps encounter inside of ourselves as well. How different it is from so much modern spirituality, even certain forms of Christian religiosity which tell us that those who would gain their lives must take hold of them, must name it and claim it. Your life is in your hands. Own it. It's no secret that the human imagination has been and can be a great inventor and astonishing fabricator of religion. We can come up with ideas about divinity and spirituality, conceptions of God, lowercase g, uh, that are a far cry from what we actually see in Jesus of Nazareth in uh, the truth about God that we learn from Jesus. A tendency to create ideas about God that are false is well documented in the Bible and you find many more examples throughout human history. The pastor and theologian John Calvin summed it up nicely when he wrote, the human heart is an idol factory. Roger's heart is an idol factory. How does that happen? How do we make up ideas about God? How do we end up with false religion? Maybe like this. We identify our needs and our wants on our own terms. And then we go on to select religious beliefs or patterns of spirituality or a brand of Christianity that will cater to our needs and our wants. And so as a result, our souls are fed a diet of self-satisfaction. How right the philosopher Voltaire once was when he quipped, God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. Consequently, we end up pursuing a God, for example, whose job is to flatter our self-esteem. That's the therapeutic God. There are versions of that God all over the place. Sometimes people even preach it. Just turn on TBN and you'll see some of that God there. Or we pursue a God whose job is just to multiply our happiness, by which we mean giving us more stuff and more money. That's the prosperity God. You see him a lot as well. He's all over America. Um, and so that job, the job of the prosperity God is to keep us looking great, feeling good, having a blast at the beach, Every day, full of happiness, never an unhappy day, nothing difficult, nothing hard. 
When we speak of the word happiness in that context, we mean something quite different from what Jesus meant when he said happiness. Jesus used a word that in Greek it's makarios, and in Sermon on the Mount it translates as blessed. Blessed are you uh, when you're peacemakers. Happy are you when you're peace, peacemakers. But what Jesus means by happiness is quite different from what we often mean by happiness. Uh, because when we talk about happiness, we often talk about a God whose ways are our ways, does what we want, a uh, God who uh, provides for our needs and wants without question, a God whose commandments we can obey without any personal cost. And that's not what you see in Jesus. It comes to this. A lot of the religion of modern people, a lot of Americans, maybe even some of us in this room, uh, centers not so much on the transcendent goodness and redemption of God that we meet in Jesus, but rather centers on the exercise of individual sovereignty and autonomy. I call that Frank Sinatra religion. It's like the old song, I'm going to do it my way. We all like to sing that song sometimes, don't we? And it also centers on the relentless pursuit of personal pleasure, uh, hedonism. To put it crassly, and here I quote, the orgasm has replaced the cross as the focus of longing and the image of fulfillment. You didn't think your preacher would say that, did he? But I quote, and that's why a lot of modern spirituality has become an activity, an undertaking of men and women who recognize no discipline beyond their personal preference, their personal judgment. And it's also why a lot of our spirituality is fashioned by emotional indulgence, by largely unquestioned subservience to our feelings. These days, how we feel about something, does it not, so easily determines what we believe to be true, what we believe about God, and how God, what we believe about God, how God himself must think about things. And absent from all of that, and I'm just pointing out the obvious now, is a conscientious effort to know God as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture, and especially in the person of Jesus Christ, who's with us right now by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? When we fall into those patterns, the consequence is that we don't really truly see and know God, even if we claim to speak in his name. I've seen a lot of people on TV shouting these last five years, screaming in marches. Seen a lot of them speaking boldly and abrasively about what God's will is with respect to this or that issue or challenge. But so often the content of their speech made it quite clear that they hadn't spent much time with God. They hadn't spent much time getting to know God through Scripture and through Jesus. And I've seen that on the left and I've seen that on the right and you have too. And so while people may have claimed to speak in God's name, what they spoke was not necessarily God's word. This is something that a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood very well. I've talked about him before. I'll talk about him again. He's a hero of mine. By way of very, very brief introduction, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran minister in Germany in and around World War II when the Third Reich came into power. And he was part of a resistance movement against the Nazis. Eventually, he got executed. He was hanged by a piece of metal wire very shortly before the war ended. He was hanged by that wicked and diabolical regime, and he was hanged for being part of an assassination attempt on Hitler's life, which, of course, failed. But before that happened, he wrote something on a topic that he referred to as cheap grace. Listen to his words. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring any repentance. It's baptism without any discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. 
There's a lot of cheap grace out and about these days, and it makes its way into our churches. It makes its way into you. It makes its way into me. There is seepage, as they say. You might say that that's an occupational hazard of living in an affluent society that praises individual autonomy, exalts emotional decision-making. Just be true to what you feel. That's the only thing you need to do. That's bad advice. Don't follow that advice. A society that promotes hedonism, radical self-indulgence to a degree never before seen on this planet, not even in the the high days of the Roman Empire. And this cheap grace, and you don't want to miss this, can be very effective in insulating us from the unpleasant truths of our existence, because there are some. It can shield us, it can detach us and remove us from a meaningful recognition of the nastiness that is to be discovered in all living and breathing people, starting with Roger Revel. Please forgive my frank analysis. You might think of it as personality dialysis. Cheap grace is an enemy of everything that Lent is about because Lent is a time to take sober stock of ourselves and to come afresh to the conclusion that no, not everything is okay, I am not fine, and without the grace of God, I could very easily become the worst version of myself. That's part of what Lent's about. And according to Scripture, according to Jesus, part of being a true follower of God is to have that kind of epiphany and to have it time and time again, at least once a year. Lent comes once a year, doesn't it? And we don't have it so we can be buried in guilt. If you're thinking that way, don't think that way. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to be buried in guilt. The purpose of coming to terms with the, the problems inside of us, with our fallen state, is so that we don't get deluded into thinking that I really don't need God's forgiveness because I do. I'm not going to ever outgrow that. And that we really don't desperately require healing and restoration. Yes, you do. And you're never going to outgrow that. And that if left to our own devices, we can manage pretty darn well. We'll be all right. No, we can't. That's a lie. Don't believe that. We need the grace of God. And so Lent calls us each year to those sorts of realizations. And in doing so, it helps prepare us for Easter. Because Easter is not just a day for egg hunting and nice dresses and dapper bow ties, so there's nothing wrong with any of that. Easter is a yearly reminder of how the light of Christ is overcoming the darkness of Roger. But if Roger doesn't see that darkness, then the light is wasted. And so Lent says to me, from dust you came and to dust you'll return. And Lent tells me to say, Lord, have mercy, because apart from you, there's no good in me. And Lent calls all of us to repent and believe the gospel. Those are Jesus' words. Now, at this point, drawing to a close, I want to get real practical. I know there's some people in the room who like the application, the practical stuff, so I'm going to feed you well today. How can we use Lent as an act of resistance against cheap grace? Let me offer a few suggestions. Use Lent to put Christ back in the center of your life. First, I want you to think about things you can take out. This is a big part of the Lenten tradition, fasting, taking out. What are some things in your life, good things, not just bad things, but things that, even though they're good, might distract you from seeing Christ and relying on Him, from waiting on Him in hard moments, from greater dependence on God every day? What are some of those things? Maybe it's food or drink, specific food, specific drink. Maybe it's a legal drug of some sort. Maybe it's an illegal drug. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's overworking. What do you turn to for comfort and consolation? What do you go to when the stress spikes up? How do you cope? 
You cope by turning to Jesus. By taking things out, we can use Lent as a new start to create more space for communion with Christ. And that's what it's all about. That's the only thing that's going to matter at the end of the day. This church will be long gone. That will still matter. Now, there may be some positive side effects to taking things out. Maybe you save money. You don't buy as much chocolate. Maybe you lose weight. But don't do it for that reason. Take it out so that you can be nearer to God. Here's something else on that subject, a little bit more challenging, perhaps even impossible, but I think it's good to do this during Lent. Find something in your life that you can't just take out by an act of will. I can stop eating chocolate tomorrow for 40 days if I want to. I've got enough willpower to do that. But there are things in my life I can't just take out, and that's true for you too. What are these things? We're talking about anger or lacerating sarcasm, which is part of who you are, or stinginess or a judgmental spirit. You're very judgmental to people around you and things. An over-tendency to use profanity. It can be hard to turn that off. I know about that sometimes. An addiction, a way of speaking to your spouse, a habit of complaining, a refusal to forgive. It's worth noting that the early Christians traditionally used Lent as a time to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation very intentionally before Easter because that's what Easter is all about, God forgiving us and reconciling us to himself. So maybe you need to do some of that. Again, these things can be hard to do. We can't just turn it off and on. I know that. The force of habit is strong, and post-fall, the kingdom of self is heavily guarded territory. But we can always ask God for healing and help and sanctification. And so maybe during Lent, consider asking the good physician to help you with something that you simply cannot sort out on your own. And pray for that every day. I need it. You need it. Second thing I want you to think about is something you might add in. That might be a little counterintuitive. You think Lent's about fasting, not adding in. But it can be about adding in as well. The New Testament says we're to put off the old sinful self, but also to put on the new self. And that can encompass a lot of things. And maybe Lent's a great time to lean into some putting on, adding in. Maybe you add in a card each week that you write to someone who has had a profound impact on your life, a former friend, a teacher, a mentor, and you bless them. Or maybe you write a card or a letter to someone who just needs a little encouragement or uplifting. There are people like that all over, all over the place. Maybe you're one of those people. You need a card. Maybe someone here will write you a card. Maybe do a random act of kindness every day. Jesus did a lot of those, and it helped change the world. Add some things in. Add in works of mercy and love. And in this arena of adding in, there are two things that I want to encourage all of us at Christ the King to add in together this Lent as a community. On the way out, you're going to get one of these. It's a laminated card, laminated because we have children in this church, and children spill things like milk or bourbon or whatever else on the card, and uh, it will dissolve. So this will keep that from happening. What are you going to find on that card? On, the, on one side, you're going to find the Lenten Gospel Challenge. I want all of you by yourself, with your kids, if you have them, with your spouse, with a friend, to go through the Gospel of Luke in its entirety during Lent, to bring the Word of God into your life, to bring the story of Jesus right back to the center of your identity. And here's a schedule that will get you through Luke, starting tomorrow and finishing by Easter. Just read a little bit each day. Totally manageable. It only takes a fifth of the time that it would normally take to get through a typical Netflix, Netflix program. Very manageable. 
And relatedly, there's a prayer challenge. That's on the back side of the card. We're very efficient here. We're using both sides of the paper. I want everyone to be super-duper intentional about praying every day. Again, do this with your kids. Do it with your spouse. Do it with a friend or a neighbor. Do it with someone, different people in the week. Do it by yourself. That's okay. There's a little prayer there. You can use this prayer, simple structure. Praising God, giving thanks, asking for God's help, praying for others. You can do that in five minutes or less. Surely we can spare that. There'll be great dividends and great fruit. It's always how it is with prayer. Maybe you pray every day at 12.12. You can set that on your smartphone alarm clock. Why 12.12? Because in Romans 12.12, St. Paul says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, and persevere in prayer. So maybe you set your alarm clock every day at 12.12 and you pray. But if you don't do it at 12.12, just do it sometime. Just a moment. We're going to come forward and have ashes smeared on our foreheads. And I'll say these words to you. From dust you came. And to dust you shall return. On our own, those words could prove eternally true, but they don't have to because God is with us. And so those words don't have to. Dust is not the last word. And so may I encourage you as we move into Lent to rebuff your ego, to be more willing to surrender your self-regarding instincts, to be less fearful of things that cause you discomfort, open to change. Change can be really good. It can be really good. God wants to change us. To be more ready to allow yourself to be interrupted by God. To be more mindful that Jesus says the gate is narrow and the way is hard. He did say that. And he also said, come along with me though because my yoke is easy. He said that too and he's with us. And to be constantly asking Christ to guide you in contemplating and putting into practice whatever forms of taking out and adding in you might commit to between now and Easter. And through those gestures, may we all be more filled with the divine life and experience that brightness that is there to be discovered amidst the darkness and sorrow that Lent calls us to recognize. That's the way of Jesus. It's not God as we would have him be, but God as he would have us be. I speak to you in his name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.